He used to ask, when were you right before? And it's, it's a pretty open-ended question, but it, it really works. People talk to you about just different times in their life where they had an inkling of an idea and their premonition led them to pursue that idea. And boy, oh boy, did they get it right. And by the way, it could be a lemonade stand. It doesn't have to be, you know, I came up with the idea for Uber, but, um, but we listen to those stories really intently and we follow people that have, you know, experienced hard times, but have ultimately been right. So here's the big question. Have you ever been so financially frustrated from years of poor financial decisions only to wonder why didn't they teach me in school anything about how to manage money? I've spent the last 20 years learning the secrets to how money really works and how to use it to get financially free on a goal to retire early. I've realized how much of an impact we could have on the world by teaching financial literacy, entrepreneurship, and a successful mindset. Join me as I interview some of the world's most successful business owners, coaches, and parents to get them to share their secrets on how you can not only learn, but teach these lessons to your kids to become financially free and impact your children's financial trajectory so they can avoid the frustration and go on to do great things. I'm Cody Laughlin, and this is the Money Talkers Podcast. Welcome back to Money Talkers with your host, Cody Laughlin. I have Soraya Darabi with me today. She is a serial entrepreneur, so obviously I love that. Uh, she's also a new mom and an investor with a total of eight unicorns and co-founder of TMV, the early stage venture firm investing in impact across two different funds. And so she has also got an accolade of... Uh, you know, recognitions from the Fortune uh, 40 Under 40, the Women to Watch, and the Inc. 30 Under 30 as well, and a few others. But with that, welcome to the show, Sarai. Oh, thanks, Cody, for having me. And gosh, I wish I was still under 30. That was two years ago. <laughs> yeah, I can't qualify for either one of those. So don't worry about it. Uh, but one day so, I'll be, uh, we'll be part of the 100 under 100. That's it. I just want to be one of the machines under the machines, you know, who just, we, we finally transfer over to where it gets a, uh, you know, long, 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 long lives. So, um, well, I was, so I want to, we actually just talked about it off air, but um, as an investor in unicorns, I want the audience to be able to understand how impressive that is because it really is. So can you kind of talk about what you do um, and what that means? Sure. And, and um by no means do I expect to be able to kind of explain my industry, which is called venture capital in, in you know, two quick minutes. But I'll say at a very high level, um, I believe in calculated risk-taking. And so I work with some partners, uh, four to be exact, in investing in young companies, startups that we think have the power and the prowess to change the world. And when we call it a unicorn, um, that's not necessarily impressive in and of itself. A woman named Aileen Lee of Cowboy Ventures invented the term years ago. And a unicorn is a company that starts as a startup and then grows to be valued at more than $1 billion. And it's usually a private market valuation. And so, um, especially when she coined the term roughly a decade ago, this was a very big deal because very few startups amassed that sort of accreditation, that, that ability to be valued at over a billion. Um, but markets change pretty quickly. And now you have, um, you know, more unicorns than ever in history, 
in, in our, our current market conditions. And so now you'll hear terms like DECA unicorn and CENTA unicorn for businesses valued at 10 billion or 100 billion, things have changed. Um, but I'm very proud of the fact that, um, again, at a high level, my firm, Trail Mix Ventures, we go by TMV, we usually write the first or second check into a company and we're very lucky when they grow up to be valued at that dollar amount, but we're even more lucky when these companies end up changing the world for the better. So are you investing in companies once they become companies like, or are you investing in ideas? We invest sometimes in ideas, but typically we want to see a few more proof points. So a founder will come to us usually when all they have is an idea and a deck. And a deck is just a PowerPoint or a keynote or a PDF with some visuals. Usually it's 10 to 20 slides and then an appendix. And the deck says, here's who I am. This is my story. Um, I have this audacious idea. Um, I really want to build XYZ to change XYZ. And in that deck, they talk about how they plan to go to market, as we call it. How do they plan to bring this idea to the world? Um, how they plan to attract talent. So that's recruiting an initial team. How they plan to make money, generate revenue. Um, how they plan to scale. So compound that revenue over time. And how they plan to compete, differentiate their story from, you know, all of the other ideas out there that could be similar in a competitive landscape. That's usually what a deck conveys. And a good deck tells that story in just a really, really compelling way. And so if a deck is just super compelling, we will invest before the company gets off the ground. But because our firm is slightly more mature than we were when we started five years ago, we are now experiencing um, <laughs> a great amount of what we call deal flow, deals sent our way. And we get to pick the best deals that come across our desks. And so we tend to be a little bit more discerning. So how many deals would you say, if you were going to guess, that you look at compared to how many you would invest in? Well, without exaggeration, we see more than 100 decks a week. And we actually have a five-person deal team at TMV. And these are um, graduate students. Um, typically, they're pursuing an MBA. Uh, in the past, one was pursuing a PhD and um, always open to folks from other backgrounds joining us too. But the people who are really excited about venture capital, they tend to go to business school. And, um, and they join our firm and the way we sort of introduce them to our work and, and give them familiarity with what we want to invest in is by putting them on the front lines. So on a chessboard, they would be our pawns, but not because they're pawns, but just because they're the first line of defense. And um, they look at decks almost exclusively all week long. And they filter, um, get this, of the 100, only three companies a week actually end up pitching to our whole team. And a pitch is when a founder will come in and present their idea for 30 minutes in front of our group of 12. And so already we have a high bar just to say hello and have a first handshake with a founder. So of the three uh, that come through, how many of those do you think, how many of those do you normally look at before finding somebody? I'm trying to get a ratio out of you a little bit. I'm thinking, I'm trying of to think course. about it. No, no, down. no. I, I love it. And and <laughs> by the way, if students want to pitch us, please go ahead. It's good practice. Or maybe you have the next Facebook. Remember that was started at school. Um, we invest in about 15 companies a year. Okay. 
So you're looking at 150, so 10% basically of the people who get through the filter, which is only 3%, uh, can get to where they become investable. Now, my question, the, re the reason I wanted to try to figure that out, um, so out of 5,000, am I doing that right? Yeah, 5,000 a month, a year, uh, maybe 150 get seen to pitch. And then of those, uh, you said about 15, so about, right? So uh, that's, um, so of those 15, what makes them stand out from the others? It's a really good question. Cody, we look for founders that have grit most of all. And um, I really love the book Mindset by Carol Dweck. And so we look for founders that have a growth mindset. Um, that means that when they've been through tough times in the past, they have a really good story, a good narrative about how they got through that tough time and figured out what they needed to figure out. Um, so, oh, by the way, you're going to hear some background noise. My daughter's about to sit down for her lunch and I hope that's okay. Your podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. This, okay. this, this podcast is for kids. So exactly. Uh, if kids are, if kids are up doing stuff in the background, no problem. Okay. That's cool. Um, you got, you got to represent the working moms, right? That's how it works. Uh, yeah. So we look for people with a growth mindset and, um, Jeff Bezos of Amazon has a famous question when he hires people at Amazon or hired, cause he's just left. He used to ask, when were you right before? And it's, it's a pretty open-ended question, but it, it really works. People talk to you about just different times in their life where they had an inkling of an idea and their premonition led them to pursue that idea. And boy, oh boy, did they get it right. And by the way, it could be a lemonade stand. It doesn't have to be, you know, I came up with the idea for Uber, but, um, but we listen to those stories really intently and we follow people that have, you know, experienced hard times, but have ultimately been right. Um, and then we look for diverse teams. That's really important to us at TMV. And uh, we like to invest in men and women and people from all socioeconomic classes and, and races and, and gender identity. Uh, we believe in diversity because we think it's good for business, good for our investors. And then we look to see if the business is purpose-driven across the five categories that we care most about. There's a lot of things you can invest in in this world from gold and oil, all the way down to healthcare, which is a TMV vertical. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, what do we want to spend our time doing and putting capital toward? And so we, we narrowed it down to five categories. And I think those are the first three things that matter most to us. After that, it gets, the word is perfunctory. It, it becomes really sort of, you know, analytical uh, as to why we invest in a, in a team and a, and a model. But in the beginning, those three questions are, are top of mind. So one of the things that you said out of that was that you look for the founders and their grit and their story and their tenacity. So one of my personal feelings about being an entrepreneur and being successful at it is that you have to have tenacity. Like you have to be able to take a punch and then get back up and, and, and uh, adapt to it and realize that, you know, we don't have failures. We have opportunities to learn from things. Right. And so some of the best people I've met, uh, and especially even through the podcast, is they have had massive tragedies at some point in their business life, their personal life, or something has fueled them, and they've identified that they don't want that anymore, and they want to run away from that. And that kind of sounds like you actually look for that when you're looking for people that who can bounce back and have that, what you use the term, grit. 
right? Yes, absolutely. I'm lucky. My in-laws are French. So it's a really cool company, a company. Listen, 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 listen. <laughs> I'm lucky because my in-laws are French. And so it's a really cool country to get to spend some time in. Um, we're there over the holidays. We're there in the summer. And I spend a lot of time with French entrepreneurs too. And what's interesting in, is in Europe, they say, if you're a failed entrepreneur, you're a failure. But in the US, if you're a failed entrepreneur, you're an entrepreneur. And it's funny because, you know, it, it, it is very American to believe that, um, you know, when you're, when you're knocked off the horse, the best thing you can do possibly in the world is to get back on it. And um, I like that about, you call it tenacity. I, I like American tenacity uh, when it comes to business um, because nobody's perfect and, and we have to get rid of all the expectations to be perfect. And I think you learn more through experiences than anything else. You know, I couldn't agree with that part more. Um, I good enough plans are, are are way better than perfect plans because there are none. And I don't care how good I think I've thought through an idea, or this is absolutely going to work. Because for one, I um I have that kind of thing in my head where like my ideas are all great and they're really not. There's like 99 of them. They're terrible. One's really really good sometimes. And so <laughs> you have to be able to run through your bad ideas and have a good enough plan. Because I think that with kids, one of the things that if they could learn, they don't have to be, they don't have to have a perfect plan. They have to have a really, really good plan and a, an ability to adapt to it, what happens, right? I think that adaptability is really underrated. And I think that as early as you possibly can while in school, if you can just practice, not just thinking, oh, oh darn, I didn't get that question right on the test, or the teacher asked me something and I didn't have the answer, or I'm embarrassed because my classmates know more than I do about this particular subject. If you can just practice, instead of feeling embarrassed, ask yourself, well, what did I learn from that experience? And what did I learn from the other kids in the class who were more prepared or who did have an understanding of what it is that I wish to learn because that's adaptability. And that's, that's something that we don't talk about enough. It's not always the best thing in the world to have the answer immediately on recall. Sometimes you need to ask yourself a little bit more about the why. The ability to find the answer is actually a better skill set to me than knowing the answer. Exactly. A lot of times growth mindset. Yeah. And that's, um, you mentioned something too, that I wanted to kind of touch on that I find fa fascinating that when the founders set up this country, um, one of the best blessed gifts that they gave in the whole thing was bankruptcy, right? <laughs> cause that you were talking about how in France are like, if you're a failed entrepreneur, you're a failure. Well, cause that was, they had debt prisons. Like if you borrowed money to try to do your dream and failed, like you went to prison until somebody else could pay your debt. And then so now your family's double, they're double whammy, the family. And so people didn't want to go try and, and risk everything to be great or to change the world or make it better. And, it's so uh, true. And, yeah. and as Americans, we're still young. We're teenagers. Americans are so little compared to older cultures, like you find in Asia, the Middle East and Europe. And so um, as teenagers, we're still in our sort of reckless youth where we think with unbridled enthusiasm, anything is possible. But I love that pioneer spirit about America. And when you think about culture, you forget that a lot of this is intrinsically in our DNA. It's Darwinian. You know, the idea that it's bad to fail could very well be in Europe 
traced back to those debt prisons that you speak of. And our willingness to try anything in America could be, you know, um, the, the simplicity of youth. Yeah. Yeah. Like we, but you also, you know, you don't being able to go out and change the world because you you don't have that threat on the backside of it allowed us to go and change the world, you know? And so for me, my hope uh, above all things with this podcast is that there are some kids who are getting this kind of information earlier and earlier so that they don't, you know, they're not 35 with two kids and a job where they've got just enough scraping by monthly and they have those great ideas and they, they can't go pursue them because they're scared because they have obligations at that point that I hope that there's kids that can get some of this, you know, information that I never had. Um, you know, I grew up in an entrepreneurial household, so I always just assumed I could own a business. Like I didn't even know what kind of business I would own. I just assumed I could own one. Like I didn't, because it was normal to me. So I hope that there's more of that so that when kids come out, yes. they can go and change the world because they haven't had the, I don't know, the, the anchor on them where they, you know, where they're scared to go because life will start to pile up on you, you know? Right. Well, that's why I'm passionate about teaching STEM in school, teaching engineering and coding, making that free of charge because in the past technology entrepreneurship was definitely cost prohibitive. And I certainly did not grow up in that kind of household that you speak of. Um, I love the household I grew up in. My mother was an academic. I was raised mostly by a single mom, really bohemian and cool way to grow up because we had interesting people around the dinner table every single night talking about what they were writing their dissertations on. But I don't think we talked too much about how to start a business. In fact, I often joke in podcasts that we used to toss the business section of the New York Times away. It wasn't of interest. Oh, one second, pardon me. Do you mind? Oh, no problem. Okay. So, so yeah, I grew up in kind of a bohemian household where we didn't talk about business all the time. Um, But that's okay because what was encouraged by my really smart and academic parents was the belief that curiosity carries you forward. Mm. And I think there's a strong tie between entrepreneurs and their parents' belief in fostering curiosity. So it's not so much about, you know, I think teaching kids the ABC fundamentals of business, which is important for sure. And, and partially why your podcast is so, so popular. Um, but I think it's also about encouraging children to read and explore and to just try new things. Yeah, I, um, I, I love that part because it's actually something I've really kind of learned and ingrained from talking to different people is the ability to ask open-ended questions with my kids and not give them the answers. And it's, it's, it's sparked some amazing moments with my children. Like they, there's one story where um, I had... I was walking, I, I grill a lot. So I have a, and I have sliding glass door. My son always runs and grabs the door for me. I've got like my handfuls and stuff. So I go out to the grill. And so I was coming back in and I had this handful of stuff. And he says, he stops me at the stairs when I'm like two feet from the kitchen. And I'm like, what buddy? And he's like, how much money do you have? And I'm like, oh my, and I mean, and in like three seconds, I probably had 10,000 thoughts. And I'm like, I'm the money talker guy. I have to tell him the truth. And I'm like, what? No, he doesn't need to know that he's five years old. Like why? I don't know. Why is he asking me? I mean, just all these like you know, like questions like, and I finally just said, I remembered it just popped in my brain. One of the guests said, just ask him why. And I was like, oh, why do you want to know that, bud? And he looked at me and he said, dad, I have a hundred dollar bill. And it was like, his, he still has it today. It's like his prized possession. So that's why he was so excited to win another hundred dollars last night. But he's got a hundred dollar bill. And he says, dad, 
I have a hundred dollar bill. And if you don't have a hundred dollars, I want to give it to you because you do so much for this family. And like, I stopped and it was like, man, if I hadn't been, you know, intentionally listening to things and asking these kind of questions of like how to be open-minded and open question and all this stuff, like I would have missed this moment. And it was so special to me. And so I love that idea of like fostering curiosity from your parents and that, that, that it's fun to get in those shoes with them. You know, you mentioned you have uh, a, a baby right now, but it's, it's fun. It's so, yeah. you're going to see, it's so fun to get in their shoes with them when they start to do that and explore oh, it with them. I can't wait. <laughs> my, my daughter is at a, a phase at 15 months where she gets easily startled by things. This is new. She was so brave and brazen, but now, you know, if you turn off the lights, suddenly she, she's a little spooked or, and, um, and so what we're trying to, to foster in her is, is, is bravery and, and telling her, no, it's okay that these things are scary, but it's better to, to kind of charge through the fear. And I think that's the first step, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of times we don't allow ourselves to embrace our curiosity because of, because of fear. And so if we can try to make our children feel as safe as possible, then we can really help them delve into what interests them. And then I, I think your, your story about, you know, your conversation with your son and asking him just why is, is a brilliant example of this. Just, just encourage open-ended conversation and let them take their mind where it takes them. You know, what's funny is that it's almost like the life cycle of an entrepreneur, right? Like the baby entrepreneur is like brave and doesn't know any better. And it's like charging forward. Like I'm going to make it success. And then they get a little, they get to the next kind of like step and they've got a few employees and then it's like, ah, I'm scared of everything that's going wrong. Like, you know, and it's, <laughs> I think you kind of go through, I don't care how, like, uh, how, uh, you know, experienced you are at it. Like as your business owner, you just, you have those kind of like, I'm going to do it. And then it's like, ah, like <laughs> you gotta, it, it's green, green. I know <laughs> it's funny that there's so many entrepreneurs who, who have famous stories of dropping out of high school or college. And it's, it's not that a lack of education helps you become successful, but sometimes not overly intellectualizing things is a great asset in business. 12 hours. That's how many hours I had left to get my degree. My mom could have shot (laughs) me. (laughs) She was so mad. (laughs) There's analysis paralysis that can hold you back for real. And I I think um, one of my great assets is um, an ability to make a decision quickly, but it's based, it's predicated on experience and pattern recognition but I really like that about myself. And um, I took an Enneagram test recently, which is one of those cool personality tests. We just did them last week, me and my wife. Okay, good. I I can't (laughs) wait to hear what your numbers are. I scored highest as the adventurer. And that that resonated with me. And and the number one critique and compliment of an adventurer is rapid decision-making. I was an eight. What are you? I'm an eight. So um, I forget the- Oh, that's the the take charge one. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's like a real leader that's a that's a i'm, I'm yeah and, and when i read it i was like oh man i am like reading myself <laughs> it was bad like really? it felt it felt, felt kind of like uh it felt kind of creepy or scary or something like you could read something like i could take a hundred question test and i could read and it knew it knew me better than me you know like uh but yeah i you know you talk about being a rapid decision maker i that's kind of where I was talking about like, with the baby and the thing, because like when I was, when I f- opened up my first companies, like I was always like, take charge. We're going to go. It doesn't matter. We'll figure it out. We're going to do this. And then later when I got a really you know large company, hundred plus employees, and I became trapped in my decision-making, you know, it was always, let me think about it. Let me think about it. I want to make, I got to make the right decision. 
And I actually had to retrain myself to make a decision on the spot. And what I found out was I wasn't more likely to be right or wrong. I was just going to find out faster. You know, I don't think I made better decisions because I waited and thought about it because it's still the same thing. You make the decision and you see what happens and then you react to it. So I believe in preparedness. I believe in coming into meetings with notes, whether you have prepared those notes yourself or someone has prepared them for you, knowing with whom you're about to speak and feeling like nothing's catching you by surprise. But I value efficiency more than anything. Probably my number one value. You're speaking my language now. (laughs) And I think that you have to sort of model for your teammates what you value. And I, I, I model for them all the time um, the power of the word no and, and efficient decision-making. It's sort of like in poker. The world's best poker players often have consistent advice, which is that you need to fold your hand more than you play it. Mm. And in investing, I believe that. And I think the kindest thing that you can do for a founder, if you're not going to invest, is to give them a rapid no. And, and, and by the way, impart some reasons why. Give them thoughtful feedback. But um, it's my job at, at our venture firm, we talked about the percentages, how it's a low ratio of, of deals that come through our desks and an intake versus, you know, the, the investments that we ultimately make. Um, so, so go ahead. It, oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, so if you could give me an example uh, of one of your best investments that, you know, and it doesn't have to be dollar wise, but it's just kind of what you guys saw, maybe somebody did, somebody didn't see. Didn't see. And then I'd also like an example of one that really didn't go right, even though you had all the cards stacked the way you wanted to go. Oh, sure. So I'll rattle off a few that maybe folks who listen to you have, have heard of. Um, so we were early investors in companies like Casper, which is a mattress business. A lot of my friends sleep on Casper's at home. And I just thought it was really cool that they were taking a stodgy old industry like the bedding world and, and making it a fun, youthful brand. And in the podcast world, early investor in Gimlet Media, which sold the Spotify. And I just loved how the founders of Gimlet were making really quality content, the HBO of podcasts available to a next generation of listeners. And then um, at, at TMV, Trail Mix Ventures, we were early in uh, a company called Parsley Health, which is a telehealth and, and medicine business focused on your whole self. They don't just believe that medicine is about being sick and having a doctor give you a prescription saying this is the answer, but it's about all of the daily decisions that we make, starting with food and then leading into the supplements we take, meditation, exercise that lead to certain long-term ailments. And so all of those companies that I just rattled off have done really, really well. And again, at, at the end of the day, the, the, the instinct to invest in all of them, I could have told you the first time I met any of them that we were going to invest. Was it the plan or the, or the founder? The, the, founder. The, the founder. Okay. It, it always starts with the founder, their ability to tell a story well. We call that the narrative, but their ability to just kind of map out a grand vision that they also know how to execute on. So it's those two things. I know how big this can be, and I have a personal playbook as to how we'll get there. That's what really drives a yes from our firm. So I'd like an example of someone that didn't work. Well, you don't, and you don't have to name names, but just a, a, a one where you were like, this is going to go. And then it just nothing like what? No, it's happened a lot. And I'll tell you something that's not really intuitive, but 
I, I've had to learn the hard way. Um, I, I no longer find it worthwhile to invest in a founder that has recently had a really big win, like a really big exit. Three times in my career, I've invested in buddies of mine that have come off of just massive windfalls, just like their company totally won the race and they're doing their victory lap. And, and oftentimes these gentlemen or women, but in my instance, the three times were all men, those gentlemen don't even take a break. They don't sit down and take a beat. They say, ah, I know what my next company is. And people throw capital at them as investors because everyone wants to be working with somebody that knows how to drive a rocket ship. But ultimately I've been burned at least three times on, on those kinds of investments. And it's because people do need to take a beat. People do need to rest, to be really thoughtful before they gear up to begin another marathon. It's exhausting running a company. And sometimes those founders don't see their own blind spots because they're so used to sit, everyone saying yes to them. They're so used to things clicking and going right that it's really hard for them when things don't go their way. Yeah, I think that um, that was the only, when I sold, I, I wanted a break. You know, I just wanted to be with my kids for a few years and I've done that and it's been, it's been fantastic. Like I wouldn't change it for the world. Now, do I go through about 10 business ideas a day in my head? Of course. But, you know, um, well, let's play that game. That's one of my favorite conversation starters when I meet up with someone for coffee. You know, if you weren't doing your existing business, what would you be building? Ooh, I have been through quite a few, but I do own several businesses currently. So I, uh, I do have one that's a little bit of a disruptor uh, in, a, in a very odd industry. But, um, you know, for me, I really like the idea of getting into business brokering because I think there's a wide open space of it. And I like dealing with business owners because I, I, I see so many people who have this asset and it's the fastest path to build wealth is the and most controllable path as well is to build a business for sale. But I think there's a really hard spot for very few, for very young or not young, very small entrepreneurs, right? Like there's 10 million bucks above there's PE firms, you know, and there's, uh, family offices and there's you know it becomes investable a lot of times because like you said scale size these things but there's there's more small businesses than anything else 21 million i think in, in america and there's very few people to help them and these are life-changing people so there's two hundred thousand dollar you know if their businesses were right. 200 grand or you could get it to six hundred thousand which is not that hard if you're at two hundred thousand dollar valuation to get to 600 but that's life-changing for a family definitely you know and so i see that there's a lot of I'm with There's you a lot there. of need there. You know what I mean? I, I'm with you there. Let's brainstorm offline. <laughs> I love that. That's I, I just, I, you know, because I've been in these businesses and I was one of them, right? I had a million dollar business and didn't know it. And then a, a year and a half later, it was gone. So I got zero out of it. And actually what I got out of it was a boatload of debt and my business partner filed bankruptcy. I didn't, I crawled, I crawled and clawed my way out of it over seven years, but I went into thousands of businesses in 2008, 2009, 2010 and saw where like all these business owners were in the same boat. I always like to laugh and tell the story where like, I would imagine walking into like one of those, um, what do they call them? The small business thing where you go and like they trade business cards and they have like a cocktail, you know, I'm talking about like chamber of commerce events, you know, okay. like the little small chamber of commerce events. I, I just wish they would had truth serum that they like injected when you walked in there. Because everybody, you walk in, they're like, how business? Business is great. You'll never meet somebody in Chamber of Commerce business thing where they're like, oh my gosh, I don't understand how to do payroll. And my marketing team, I think my dollars are going somewhere. I don't know where they're going. You know, and it's like, 
I wish they would just tell the truth because they would be able to help each other so much more. Well, and that starts with vulnerability. You know, yeah. the reason that B'nai Brown's uh, TED Talk on vulnerability is one of the most popular, most viewed TED Talks of all time is because people are still shocked that you can be open and honest and convey fear and, um, and, and express what's not going right in, in a public forum um, and not be chastised for it. There's, there are a lot of stigmas in this country. I think money, money this is where money talkers came from. Like, money, the so I, I was in this gigantic hole at this point. Right. And I'm like, I just screwed everything up, man. Now I fought like tooth and nail to get back out of it. And that's a different story. But, uh, at some point I was just like, my, I, I moved to a new city. I made new friends and I would just talk. I'm like, dude, you and like, people would be like, start complaining. I'm like, you don't even know how bad I have. Like, I am like, I am trashed right now. Like you have no idea. And I'm like, I started just talking they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, dude, I got this IRS thing that, and all of a sudden people started opening up to me because exactly. they were like, like, well, Hey, you know, I got this credit card or I have a collection from the hospital or how do I fix this? Or do you know how to set up a 401k? Or like, they would just start asking me money questions exactly. because they were so used to everyone having these walls up, you know? And that's where I kind of came up with this 10 years later to do the podcast around this, because I want those walls broken down in the household because that relationship is so much more important and the openness to ask the questions, you mentioned curiosity, right? The openness to be able to ask those questions in a house has massive ramifications in my mind. At least I've, ta I've, I've talked myself into that, but I believe it. I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, I mentioned my parents. So, so my mother was a teacher, but a very successful one. And my father drove a cab in New York City, but he owned his cab. He owned that medallion. And the first time I heard my dad talk about money was when he was selling his medallion. And the price had risen from where he bought it when it was under $100,000, which was still a lot of money once upon a time in New York City, to close to a million dollars. And I thought my dad was set for life. And it never occurred to me that then you'd be taxed on that and, and <laughs> would go to the IRS. But, um, but it occurs to me now, because I deal with entrepreneurs all the time, that my father was entrepreneurial and he made a good investment. Yes. Um, and he, and he timed the market and he sold his investment at the right opportune moment. Now we did not talk about tax planning in my house and we did not talk about 401ks a, a little bit, maybe because when I got my first job at Starbucks, when I was 15, the cool thing about Starbucks is they give baristas 401k plans. That's awesome. And so I, I, I attribute some of my understanding of wealth planning, I guess you could say to that barista gig. Um, but I wish, I wish we talked about all these things. And I think your podcast is great for destigmatizing the concept of money because everyone should have equal access to the same information. That's the main difference. I find that, you know, when they say the rich get richer and the poor get poorer is that many people who have wealth are willing to give the information to the next generation, or they don't, they don't see it as a stigma. And many people who are coming out of, you know, uh, lesser income households and, and worse situations don't talk, don't want, it seems to be like even more prevalent that they don't want to talk about the way to do things or find out about it. And it's just, I, I hope that this helps to bring that level, that playing field a bit, because it, the information's there for us. It's just how our attitude is of how we're going to process it. I also think that, well, there's, there are a few famous phrases. One is there's a time to learn and a time to earn. And I think that phrase is outdated. If you read the book Originals by Adam Grant, who's an investor in my fund, and he's um, the highest rated business school professor at Wharton, his book Originals is terrific. And it talks about how the best time to create a startup or to create a company is when 
you have a safety net like school or like a full-time job, right? Because it's de-risking that risky move of just starting a business in the first place. I love that. Um, so I tell so, people with side hustles. I'm like, if you're not willing to pull a side hustle go. off for, if you're not willing to work, you know, they're like, Oh, I don't have 20 hours a week. I'm like, you have 164, 68 of them. Right. I'm like, <laughs> uh, and I'm like, you could, you you work 40, you have another 20. If you're not used to working 60, I was like, you're going to have a hard time doing a startup. My, my favorite writers used to say, Uta Hagen talks about this in, 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 uh, her book, which is probably right behind me, um, uh, and and Joan Didion writes about this, and even Stephen King, they all wake up every day and they write at least a page a day, right? So maybe that takes an hour for a Stephen King or a Joan Didion, and, and, and maybe it will take you two or three hours. But we all have an hour in our morning where we could wake up just a little bit earlier, make that cup of coffee, I've got mine right here, and just produce something, produce content. Now, what if instead of that, instead of that being a, a page of writing, Maybe that was a business plan and a slide of your deck. You know, it's all about incremental changes. And if if you're really excited about something, but you're afraid to take the risk, then don't. Then just start iterating on that idea, asking for feedback or doing some internet Googling. But the coolest thing you can do is calendar yourself for dedicated work time. Yeah. And, and dedicate yourself an hour a day, five days a week and three hours on the weekend for thinking time. And before you know it, you'll have a business plan. I think if more people dedicated one hour a day to do something specific, they would get way more done in that one hour than the other seven hours of work. That's an efficiency piece. That's because well, you turn you turn the pyramid upside down from all the busy work to the one important thing. If you can identify the important thing that you need to have done every day, then it's it massively moves the dominoes. So you know? here's, a, here's a plug, but I'm an investor in a company called Clockwise, clockwise.ai or getclockwise.com. This is a real plug. I'm so biased. But what they're doing is they're using AI to reorganize your calendar to create more productivity time. Wow. So the way that, you know, the Googles of the world have made our emails completely sophisticated. And you know how when you're starting to type an email now on Gmail, it, there's it some finishes your, Yeah. And there are new startups that have, you know, really exciting momentum, like superhuman that take that to the nth degree. Well, clockwise is kind of doing that, but for your calendar. So I think this is the next big innovation in tech. I'm very excited about this business. That sounds really Started cool. By a guy I went to high school with named Matt Martin. Um, but the reason I'm mentioning it is because ever since making that investment um, in clockwise, I've started to think more about my own productivity time. And, you know, not just saying yes to meetings because somebody requests a meeting, but really trying to, to sit back, take a sip of that coffee and think, what's in it for them, what's in it for me. And, you know, would having a meeting actually help us get to the right goal? I, I like 10 minute meetings, way more than three hour meetings all day long, you know, uh, hit me with the, let's get to the point. Let's get the, let's get the one thing that's going to really move the needle and then let's go. You know, I don't like scheduled time meetings very much. Um, like office hours also just for brainstorming. Sometimes you want an open-ended meeting, Yeah. but, um, but I hear you 10 minutes is, is no, I'm talking about like that scheduled Tuesday from 10 oh, to yeah. two meeting. Like we're going to sit in here and then I'm going to read you a bunch of numbers. Like when we changed yeah. our meeting schedules, we actually, we shot off in productivity. Uh, when we, we, we had our employees actually drive the meeting as opposed to us driving the meeting. So then we had their engagement, which meant they had to prepare, which meant they had to know their numbers before they got to us. And we didn't really go over the financials, which what we used to do, we went over what was the one thing in their department that would make a difference this week. And so we started doing that and they had to bring one, we call it their rocks. We kind of stole it out of traction, but uh, we, we, we had their rocks, 
But instead of doing quarterly rocks, they had weekly ones. And so they had to state out loud what the rock was from the week before, if they accomplished it, what happened, and then what the rock was going to be the next week. And if they didn't have one, the other departments got to chime in and give them one. Great. Which they hated. So they wanted, they would, they would bring their own, you know, so it made them even force it even more. Well, well, this is a true story, but my favorite gift to give anyone is a playlist. I love making them. And I think it's, it's a really nice gift that people can use, whether it's on Apple or Spotify and, and people tend to remember you for it. And back in the day, I used to burn playlists onto CDs and then before that tapes, but, um, my DJ name for when I gave these playlists was no joke, um, meetings that could be email. DJ meetings that could be email. So <laughs> clearly you and I agree that most meetings are useless. Yes, I agree hundred percent. But I, um, Surat, thank you so much for coming on with me. Um, I find what you guys do completely fascinating. I've always thought the private equity world was just a, it's, it's such a, uh, an engine to get businesses above and beyond to where they go. And, um, I've, you know, I've been, I've been through a few of those meetings and the family offices and the, and the private equity and that kind of stuff. And I, I always find that the curiosity and the questions were just always, uh, so helpful. Every time we came out of one of the, like our pitches, you know, basically, um, we got way better at it because it was like, it would, it, there would be like these obvious flaws that for someone who sees them all the time could pick out in a heartbeat that right. we were like, Oh, I don't know why we don't do that. <laughs> and it was like, okay, make a note. We're doing that when we get back. Like, you know, and so we just kept getting like a little sharper and sharper. So, um, but thank you so much for coming on Money Talkers and kind of letting us into your world. I appreciate it very much. Um, if there's people uh, listening to this and they want to find out more about what you do, um, maybe they want to send you a deck for a business idea. Um, where do they find you and, uh, and who should come find you? Well, anyone can come find me. I try to make myself accessible. Um, we believe in radical transparency at TMV. So you can find me on Twitter. It's my hard to spell name at Soraya Darabi. You can find me on LinkedIn. Just Google my name and LinkedIn should pop up. You can write to hi at tmv.bc or even me directly at Soraya at tmv.bc. You know, I, I asked you how to say Soraya before we got on here, but I put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable when I said your last name. <laughs> oh, Soraya Darabi? Yeah, well, Darabi. I said Darabi, so I apologize for that. <laughs> my, my parents clearly wanted to raise a kid who uh, could build character. <laughs> Those are icebreakers, though, right? Yeah. There you go. Yeah, so I, maybe I, they gave I, you a sure. gift. That was a gift. So then they said, you know, and they go, what's your name? People and then, then people me, remember Where is you. it from? What does it mean? And by the way, it means <laughs> constellation. So anyway, thanks so much for having me on the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you for listening to another episode of Money Talkers with me, your host, Cody Laughlin. If you found this episode helpful in your pursuit of financial dominance, it really helps if you make sure to leave a five-star rating and share it with your friends or family members who could use good financial information and entrepreneurial success tips. I invite you to join the Money Talkers Community Facebook group. Open Facebook and search for Money Talkers to join today. Follow us on Instagram at The Money Talkers for inspirational mindset posts, encouragement, and investing tips. And remember, the one thing you can do to change your kids' financial future is to start talking about money with them because you are a money talker. <laughs>